Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Recital Hall in the Voxman Music Building. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Our program tonight is about trauma, particularly trauma experienced during childhood and the short and long-term effects it can have on health and well-being. But our discussion will not end with a description of the deleterious effects of childhood trauma. It will also highlight important advances in the recognition and treatment of health issues related to adverse childhood experiences, many of them being developed here at the University of Iowa. In our first segment, our guests will talk about epidemiology and describe how trauma impacts brain development and behavior. And my guests next to me are Corinne Piqueza. Nice to have you here, Corinne. Thank you. She's a professor in the University of Iowa Department of Occupational and Environmental Health. Next to her is Dr. Michael Flum, a clinical professor in the University of Iowa Department of Psychiatry. Thank you for being here. And at the far end, we have Yvonne Farley, a clinical assistant professor in the University of Iowa School of Social Work. Thank you for coming all the way over from Des Moines tonight. I appreciate it. So I wonder if I could start with you, Corinne. Um, in the introduction to this program, I use the term childhood adversity. What is childhood adversity? Well, childhood traumatic experiences are an event that is so traumatic to a child that it threatens to alter their optimal development. The first study of adverse child experiences uh, looked at a very large health maintenance organization, adult patients, and they were interested in measuring 13 different types of adverse child experiences, which included uh, child abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, neglect, and also family disruption, which could include a caregiver that used substances, uh, an incarcerated caregiver, um, or a, um, something else that was a mental illness, a severe mental illness in a caregiver. And so they were interested in seeing how these experiences affected these patients as adults. And what they found was a very strong relationship between the number of adverse experiences that children had, and um, they looked in particular at early death, so before your life expectancy. And they found a very strong relationship between early death and the number of adverse childhood experiences. But what was interesting is they found this relationship persisted across all 25 leading causes of death. So it was an indication that there's not a very clear biological pathway, but it's a very profound impact on biological development. Since then, there have been a number of studies across the world in different cohorts, and the prevalence of individual adverse experiences doesn't have huge variation. So, for example, data in Iowa show that 45 to 55 percent of Iowans have experienced no childhood adversities. Um, about 12 to 15 percent have had four or more. And at that point, there's a lot of concern. Uh, so I, I want to just mention a couple things about traumatic experiences. It's not normal stress. It's something that's persistent. Uh, my colleagues are going to talk about exactly how that works. Um, but in the field of public health, we really want to think about how does this impact populations and how do we focus on prevention from a primary standpoint? How do we stop the bad thing from happening so we can measure its impact at the population level? And one of the things we learned is that there aren't any sort of magic things to ask about adverse experiences. They might be individual, like child abuse, but they could also be more community or collective, like a child that has lived through a war. Um, racism might be something that could be a persistent adversity. Um, and then we focus a lot on these experiences, but I think it's also really important when we think about this prevention end uh, to, think, to realize that people have experienced many adversities and still are just fine. So it's not a, um, 
you know, a set thing that if you've had a traumatic childhood, you are destined to have poor health. Um, they also have found the adversities are related to health behaviors that might, in some cases, but not always be a mediating effect towards the bad health outcomes. But yet again, it's not a determined thing. Uh, so when we think about prevention, we want to think about what is it that, first of all, we can prevent the child adversities? And those are the big, large social issues, like how do we address housing issues and poverty issues? Um, and then we want to think about how do we um, find the children that have had adversities and improve the trajectories that they have, uh, which I do think is something that my colleagues are going to talk about. And so there we're thinking about how do we build resiliency? Rather than talking about adversities and asking people about so many bad things that happened, um, how do we find their strengths, internal strengths and external strengths? Um, and how do we find those in a community so that we can reduce the number of adversities and help with the healthy trajectories when we do know that they've happened? Hmm. Okay, well, that gives, us a, that gives us a start here. Is the data being collected on a kind of a worldwide basis now? It's exciting how quickly the data is growing, and it's growing in several ways. So there are a lot of studies that continue to look at what is the prevalence and burden, and that's very much in the epidemiology, looking at the sort of epidemic population end of it. But there's also just a burgeoning amount of knowledge in neuroscience that's helping us understand not just what is the population impact, but what is the causal pathway? How do we better understand what's happening to the brain of a child that's having a persistent trauma? Well, I'm going to skip down to you, Yvonne, and uh, ask you a question now. From the field of social work, um, what types of stress do, do you and the people who work with you in social work see? And as a faculty member, uh, how do you help the students you're teaching um, not only understand this issue, but begin to look for those signs with people they work with? Uh, well, there's many types of stresses, specifically to children. It often has with the stresses that their parents are under. And one of the most disturbing uh, dynamics that we're understanding now is that when parents are not able to be a space for the children, then we see attachment uh, issues. And so about 60% of our general population has a secure attachment. But many of our, our population that do have these severe stresses in family life or possibly at school or daycare, uh, they will have an insecure attachment, which means that they aren't able to develop resiliency skills, which is really what helps children and adults to overcome these type of adversities. Uh, but they aren't able to explore the world and develop mastery of skills. So that is a real challenge, is how do we help the parents and the caregivers to be able to provide this secure base in the world that the child can come back to and uh, as they go explore the world, then come back to safety, explore the world, come back to safety. So that's, that is really a new area related to uh, ACEs and trauma that we're understanding that they just go hand in hand and that we have to address them jointly. Uh, and so we are teaching our students to be on alert for that. And some of the latest interventions in uh, parent-child uh, therapy is on coaching the parent and how to provide this nurturing, stable base for the child. Because presumably some of the parents may not have had that experience as they were growing up. They, exactly. they didn't have a model they could follow. Um, you mentioned resiliency skills. What, what do we think of as resiliency skills? 
Well, there's, there's clusters of them, uh, mental, emotional, and uh, uh, physical. But on the emotional level, one of the big ones is that this, the children have had some alternative experience of what a healthy relationship looks like. Uh, and so mentoring relationships, extended family networks, in neighborhoods, daycare, teachers, all of that can provide an alternative experience that gives them an idea of what health looks like. Um, and then, so children actually in some surveys of adults, they will point back to these mentoring relationships. So teachers, for instance, can have a huge uh, impact on it. But also developing areas of, as I said, mastery, where they have a skill and a strength and they believe that they are capable of doing things. Uh, so, because as I said, going back to that attachment, if they haven't explored the world, they haven't found those areas where their gifts are. And so that really restricts them. So once they can discover some areas of strength, then that gives them confidence and they can build on that to expand into other areas. So if you wouldn't mind just spending a minute more talking a little bit about... Um, explaining this to the students you're working with every day, young social workers who will be going out to work in the schools or with individual families. Um, does this all make sense to them? It, it feels like it's sort of an aha. Oh, of course, I, I can see now how all these things connect. Yes, oh, oh I think so, yes. I mean, it's, it's sophisticated enough now with the brain science and, and the neurobiology and all of the studies that it's a very... It's gotten to be a very solid package of knowledge where a lot of pieces of the puzzle that were missing, like early in my career, are now coming together. And so I do think it really helps people to, to make sense of what's happening. It's more manageable now than it once was. Yeah. Thank you. So that leads us nicely into you, Michael. Uh, you're in the Department of Psychiatry, and we were talking about brain science and yeah. so on. Um, so how does toxic stress affect the brain? In many, many ways. And in our five minutes here, I don't think it would be best utilized to go through the specifics of what we know today. Um, but let, I think it's helpful to sort of just think about the brain development of any complex set of systems. I mean, I remember when I was in medical school being fascinated by how the visual system develops and experiments that show this interplay between what's going to happen without any environmental response. So if you take cats and you blind them, these were classic studies, and then you sacrifice them and you study their visual cortex, you will see some development, even without any input. But it's really broken, and it's primitive, and it's not well developed. And we need that environmental input in order to kind of Hone what is already there from genetics. So think about the complexity in responding adaptively to stress. And stress isn't bad, right? I mean, if you're getting chased by a wild animal, it really helps if the muscles in your legs get more blood flow, if your eyes dilate, if your heart beats faster. There are these you know, innate responses to stressors that are going to be there no matter what but they can be honed and they can be taught. So if children experience, you know, even more than the usual stressors, say the death of a parent or something, you know, really difficult, that doesn't have to turn out to be toxic. 
if there's a, a way to kind of use the learning and nurturing, um, then the, the systems that sort of turn stressors, the, the appropriate stress response on and modulate it appropriately and turn it off can still be preserved. But if we're dealing with the kinds of everyday chaotic environments that you're talking about, children with sort of unimaginable norms where their basic needs are not getting met, that system is going to develop erratically. Um, and we need those systems. And so when we have a relatively minor stressor, if that system during this optimal period of brain development has not been honed appropriately, we shouldn't be surprised that it's not going to work that well. So relatively minor stressors are going to be experienced as distress. Um, and we're beginning to be able to look at actual parts of the brain that we know are involved in learning and we know are involved in memory and we know are involved in sort of decision-making, executive functioning. And not surprisingly, we see both structural and functional evidence of abnormalities in children as a function of the degree of their adverse childhood experiences. Is there, we've been talking about childhood experiences mm -hmm. here, is, is there a sort of a, a safe zone? You get to a certain age and you're kind of like you sort of made Actually, it past that most not, critical not time? Not really, and, and it, it's even worse than that because we haven't even started talking about this idea of epigenetics because mm -hmm. we used to have this kind of simple notion that there was the genetic factors and then there were the environmental factors and now we recognize that there's this interplay where the environment actually alters what goes on at the genetic level and that not only isn't there a safe zone that you get past, but those alterations at the genetic level can actually be transmitted to future generations. So stress in, toxic stress in generation one if not appropriately managed, can not only have lifelong effects, but can be passed on to next generations independent of environment. We're just talking about you know, how much the research is helping us fill in all these little gaps, <clears throat> such as the epigenetic relationship. But there were some things that social workers and foster care parents noticed as symptoms with kids that had been through really persistent traumatic experiences. Like they got sick a lot. They had trouble managing time. They didn't sleep well. And we now understand that um, when your brain is developing and this constant state of stress is normal, you, you kind of develop from the bottom up. So all the stuff about how fast does your heart beat, how well do you regulate temperature, how does your immune system respond to environmental cues are done really early in your life. Um, and if that's done in a period of persistent stress, those parts of your brain work differently and don't function quite as well. So the neuroscience has helped us understand why we're seeing some of the symptoms that we are. And like Yvonne said, that helps us understand better how do we help that brain learn how to be on a better trajectory. I do want to get back to your safe zone question because I don't mean to imply that once it's set, it's set. So if you want to learn Italian, the best time to learn Italian is probably when you're two or three, right? And it's much harder when you're 55 to learn Italian. But you can learn Italian at 55. Um, so the, the time when there's the most action, when the brain is the most plastic, is this special early time. 
but it doesn't mean that that is set in stone and can't be altered. Mm-hmm. So then, are, are we thinking of, as this alteration, this more positive um, understanding of how one can deal with this sort of stress? Um, someone's making good progress. It, does this mean that it's uh, day-to-day coping that is needed, or do you somehow transform your your brain? I mean, do we, do we know whether or not you're retraining your brain or you're just learning good coping mechanisms? Your, your brain actually is being rewired through these new experiences. The experiences seem to be a core part of it. That uh, So, for instance, going back to if you were having an experience of mastery, then that would give you different pathways in the brain and it would help to restructure it and develop aspects of your personality that might have really been underdeveloped up to that point. Day-to-day coping—that it is a very active, ongoing process. Because when you're an adult, the way you retrain your brain is largely through external influences. So you have to, first of all, put yourself in the environment, and then you have to do the very hard work of, you know, your brain neurons have been very, um, you know, pruned over time. And so to help new pathways develop is a very active process. And you can't, it's, it's hard to do alone. It really takes external support and learning the skills. Well, one of the things I think we're going to have a chance to, to learn about during this full program tonight is how there are collaborators in many different fields on this campus and elsewhere trying to work together, to put the brain science together with the social work and how does this affect whole populations and so on. So I mean, that, that is a good and positive thing. As you look at your own careers and the work you've been doing, how recent uh, um, a development is this, this kind of real understanding of what ACEs can mean? In my world, I think um, what's starting to change is there's been this real confusion between post-traumatic stress disorder, which people hear a lot about, which is kind of this simple model of you're kind of going along okay and then something really horrendous happens and it has these lifelong consequences or at least enduring consequences, which is a relatively rare event compared to this relatively common and much more, um, much more on a continuum of uh, what are the long-term effects of, of chronic stress. And in my world, what I think is new is a greater uh, appreciation that um, adverse childhood experiences should be an expectation in clinical populations rather than some zebra mm-hmm. that, that we, we don't think of all the time. And that we have to have systems that are set up to recognize that about, what, 10% of our population, and in my world, in a mental health world, it's probably closer to 40 or 50% of our population who are going to have significant adverse childhood events. Yeah. I'm a researcher, so you know, every conclusion is, well, we need more research. But it's kind of true that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. So we really still are in a very steep trajectory, and we have a lot more. There's a lot more we don't know than we do know, but we're very excited about what we do know. One thing that's exciting for me is that there is so much community interest in this, and practitioners know so much, that the practitioners are really challenging the researchers for better answers, and the researchers are really challenging the practitioners to to say, is this really what we're seeing? Are our causal theories right? And so this interplay between the, the science and the practitioners is very exciting to be involved in. The other thing, I know we have to stop soon, but within population health, I mean, people are starting to 
starting to get the idea that it makes a whole lot of sense to look at the social determinants of health and that, that, that wellness and illness throughout life largely can be understood at this, uh, at this level in terms of adverse childhood events. So uh, somewhere earlier in the conversation, there was discussion about um, some of the things that a, a, a person who experienced some childhood trauma and has been living with this may have found mechanisms that, that seem to make it easier for them to get through the day or through a year, perhaps drinking, perhaps um, dangerous behaviors that person, put them at risk and personal well-being. Um, <laughs> How, when, when you are in, you're, you're in, someone is in front of you with, with a problem, maybe someone is trying to get a handle on, they recognize that they've got a problem with alcohol and they want to they wanna really address that. Um, do you, as a psychiatrist, do you, do you try to peel back layers? I mean, do you, how, how do you get to the point where you know that this is something that relates to a, a long-term toxic stress um, situation with one individual, whereas with someone else it may have been something that wasn't a problem until suddenly there was a divorce, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things you do is you normalize it. Uh, so when it's, it's, it's usually not that hard, uh, you know, to identify people who have experienced adverse childhood, the kinds of multiple adverse childhood events. And when you say to someone, you've had a pretty tough life, you know, kids in the foster care system, those kinds of things. Um, and they, they understand. We don't have to inform people to see those connections. They connect the dots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, Yvonne, um, you've been teaching in social work for quite a long time. Yes. What are the, uh, as you look back, do you recognize now that, that this whole pattern of connections that you're seeing now and working on now, that uh, are you aware that at an earlier time in your career, these did not um, have observable patterns, that the research hadn't been done to link all these things together, and, and now it really is uh, improving your ability to, to work with individuals? Oh, yes. I mean, I think that there was like conventional wisdom you know, among therapists that, you know, these things went together and it's just so affirming to now have the hard science and the data behind it. And But as I said, I think a lot of practitioners saw, oh yes, these, this all works together. But now we have the hard science and the evidence which we really need. And, the, and it just exploded in social work about 10 years ago. And just people just hungry and thirsty for the information and knowledge and and they, uh, so it's been a huge growth, and it's, it's very uh, helpful to see it moving in this direction. Well, and it seems to me, too, such a, a wonderful, um, positive um, notion that when a child's going through school and has people kind of looking out for him or her in a <clears throat> weekly setting, that that might really be a big benefit to this oh, particular yes. child. But when that child leaves school, um, they might fall into, into a world that seems much less caring. Mm -hmm. yes. And then you, you just have to hope that the right connections can be made for those students before they go out into the world. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. Gosh, well, of course, it could 
be talking for a long time, but I want to say thank you very much. We'll end this segment. So, Yvonne Farley, thank you. And Michael Flom, thank you. And Corinne Picasa, thank you so much. And uh, I'm Joan Karen. This is World Canvas. As you know, we're talking about resilience over trauma in this program, and we hope you'll stay with us in just a moment when we continue with our second panel. Uh, in the second panel, we'll look at how trauma impacts physical and mental health, child welfare, education, and the communities we live in. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. So I'm Joan Kerr, and for International Programs, thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Voxman Music Building in the center of the University of Iowa campus. This is part two of our three-part series called Resilience Over Trauma. Our guests will continue the conversation from the first segment and take a closer look at how trauma impacts physical and mental health, child welfare, education, and the communities we live in. My guests in this segment are Helena LaRoche, Assistant Professor in the University of Iowa Department of Internal Medicine. Thank you for being here. Thank you. <laughs> Next to her is Susie Poulton, Health Services Coordinator in the Iowa City Community School District. Thank you, Susie. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and Lori Nash is the person on the other end of this row. Uh, she is an Early Childhood Specialist, Johnson County Empowerment uh, and Early Childhood Iowa. Thanks for being here, Lori. Thank you. Um, Helena, I'd like to start with you. Um, as a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine, I'd just like to ask you, why is multiple trauma associated with poor physical and mental health consequences? Well, why? That's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we're still working out. Uh, Michael talked a lot about of some of the things that were already um, um, happening in the brain early on um, that um, can be disrupted by chronic stress. I mean, what we do know is that is that um, having uh, chronic childhood um, adverse experiences is related to a lot of diseases that we see in adulthood. So we see higher rates of heart disease, stroke, liver disease, lung cancer, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or people think of emphysema or chronic bronchitis. We see that. We see autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Um, we see things like frequent headaches. And people who have primary insomnia, they just can't sleep at night. Um, and then we see what we talk about is the, the, the markers of the metabolic syndrome. If you ever heard of all those things that are kind of linked to heart disease and diabetes. There's a whole bunch of things that are linked together, and we see markers of that as well, um, one of them being increasing weight or obesity. And people with, um, who've had adverse childhood experiences are actually 1.6 times more likely to be obese. Um, and we see high blood pressure that goes with that. You see high cholesterol. You see um, high blood sugars that go with diabetes. And, and as was alluded to before, there's premature death. Um, people have, may die up to 20 years earlier if they've really had all these experiences. And, and kind of beyond the, the, the individual suffering, you know, in the world of economics, we think of things like increased health care costs mm -hmm. and, and utilization. 
And then, you know, on the mental health side, we see things like learning behavioral problems, we see anxiety, we see depression, we see obsessive compulsive disorder, we see increased um, rates of suicide. Um, in people who have four, four or more of what we call ACEs, the, the adverse childhood events, you can see an increased rate of depression 4.5 times and a 12-fold increase in, in suicides. So it's really profound, the effect that this can have on people's lives over time. And, you know, we think about, well, why is this happening? Well, they're, they're working a lot of this out now. Um, you know, things, what do we know? We know that, that, it, that it affects people's health behaviors. We know that some people turn to things like tobacco to help ease the stress, and we know that tobacco is linked to things like lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, and that other people turn to things like alcohol or, or even drug abuse when they're under such incredible um, long-term stress. Um, and then we also know that, that, that the, um, when you're under that kind of stress, you know, as, as Michael said, if you're running from a lion, this is a great thing. But if you're not, you don't want to be running from a lion 24-7 all day long. And, and if you're doing that and your heart's racing and your blood pressure's up, that's not good for your heart. And, and if you keep doing that long term, you know, we know that that axis gets the, the hormones and things get disrupted, and you get things like your immune system initially not working so well, so you get infections, like we're talking about the kids having, you know, being sick a lot. Or you get the other side of the coin where the immune system finally says, I don't know who I'm supposed to be attacking, and starts attacking um, your body instead. So you get autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And, and somewhere in that disruption of all of that, there also seems to be, we're still working it out, but there seems to be a link to obesity in that comes from that as well. Um, and um, so when your whole system is kind of dis- dysregulated like that, when it's not working the way it's supposed to, um, then all sorts of things can go wrong. Sure, sure. And so um, we, we see some of these uh, symptoms, can we call them symptoms, or some of, some of these things present themselves in childhood and then all the way up into late adulthood. So when you're going to the doctor and um, you give a family history and you're asked questions like, uh, is there a history of alcoholism in your family or, um, you know, anybody in your family die of heart disease? These kinds of questions that seem sort of just like questions that come out of the blue when you're sitting in a doctor's office because it's the first time you've ever met this physician. You run through this whole family history and that can help understand the kind of environment the person has come from? Mm-hmm. Is, is, this, is this sort of the way we're collecting data? Well, we've always talked about, asked about family history in terms of things because we're, initially we're thinking about genetics and things, but it also speaks to um, your genetics plus your environment, and, and it speaks to the need to do more than that. As, as doctors, we really need to, and we don't always do a good enough job of not only collecting, you know, what's the family history, but what's your social history? Where, you know, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What is your life like now? What are you dealing with? with, you know, what's going on now, what are all these social things that affect how you are, your health, they affect, they affect how you got to the health you're in now, and they affect your ability to deal with whatever's going on now. 
so I think it really behooves us to really think about those things when we're asking those questions and not leave the social history this little to to the mm -hmm. end or or this little side note um, at the bottom of a note somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Oh. Well, thank you for starting us off. I, I want to move down the line now to you, Susie. So you're health services coordinator for the Iowa City Community School District, and obviously you deal with a variety of issues that are presented on a daily basis that can af impact the ability of kids to learn and to thrive. Um, what is the impact of trauma on the kids in a school setting, and also on uh, what's the impact of parenting that might not be ideal? So we know that um, the effects of trauma can affect a child's learning. You heard that about the brain development, that there's inability or there affects, interferes with their ability to concentrate, their memory, their language abilities, and then also affects their ability to develop healthy interpersonal relationships um, because it affects their emotional regulation. So we have kids that uh, are coming to school and are dealing with the effects of their trauma, and they're not, in an, they're not ready to learn, basically. So we have to think about um, who are these children and what can we do to, to help them learn to overcome that. And a couple things come up in the school district, in, this, in a school system. So we have rules in place that we are, provide a safe learning environment for all students. And so, some of our students affected by trauma may exhibit it by acting out and um, disruptive behavior, for example, or some aggression, things like that. And so then they get in trouble for this behavior. And it, it, this vicious cycle starts of where they're getting in trouble, there's consequences, and we don't stop to think about what's the root of the problem, you know, what, what's, going, what's going on. So instead of, we need to stop asking, why are you doing this, and ask more, what happened to you, and find out what the root of the problem is. And then there's um, children that maybe are responding by being withdrawn, and they're avoiding school. They don't come to school for various reasons. They become very anxious, anxiety, lots of anxiety attacks, things like that. And then we have the students that are engaging in very risky behavior. So it's a whole gamut. Um, and then there's those that have the, the health, the physical health symptoms that we just can't quite get a handle on. So in the district, in any school system, it's really important that, like our speakers prior to us said, this shouldn't be the zebra in the room, but it should be kind of thinking that every child has some things, some trauma perhaps, or some barriers, some um, challenges in their life. And we need to teach all children good coping skills and provide social-emotional learning to them. So we want to do that kind of for all children, and that has to do with the curriculum that we're, we're teaching, um, how they get along with other children, the behaviors that we expect, that kind of thing. And then, then as we identify kids who are having more difficulty um, working with their families, working with the school staff, to really provide some multidisciplinary approach to help them overcome this trauma, teach them resiliency, learn them, teach them to, to cope with it and become successful in our schools as academic learners, but also then successful adults too. So I'm sure it goes without saying that 
families are different, each child is different, and there's a, there might be a, a family that is very aware that their child is going through something or is not doing as well in school or is more withdrawn than they would like. So there'd be some family settings where they might be anxious to have the assistance of, of school uh, health uh, personnel. But I would imagine you sometimes run into situations too where individual families or parents may feel that it's too much of an intrusion when, uh, when you're trying to do the good work you're doing. Yes, absolutely. So we have those uh, personal differences. There. We have cultural differences we have to think about. Um, we often just blame the, want to blame the parents, but we have to be careful about that because they may be trauma-affected adults who are dealing with their own issues and are unable to provide the appropriate training or, excuse me, parenting to their children. So it's a, it's a balance act, actually, absolutely. And um, so we have to be cautious in our approach and learn to build relationships with these families. It's very important. And um, does, does a, is it usually the case that a coach or a teacher of an individual student will say, I will come to your office and say, you know, I just, I just feel like there's something troubling this child and I, I want to reach out. Um, is there a back and forth between the, the teaching staff or other people in the school environment? They work with you? So here in the Iowa City School District, we have um, worked hard over the last few years to put together kind of a multi-level, multi-tiers of support and um, communication system where teachers can communicate to administrators, to our student family advocates, to our school nurses, to our counselors that they have concerns. And so we have what's called a student support team that meets on a weekly basis to uh, review students whose attendance might be a problem, whose behavior might be escalating for whatever reason, um, or there are other things that are going on that we're noticing. But we, we can't identify every, every child. So um, it's, it's still a challenge. Yeah. We try to put as many things in place as we can, but it's still a challenge to, to identify, recognize mm-hmm. those kids. Well, so, Lori, let's uh, move down to you. You're an early childhood specialist, and you work with Johnson County Empowerment. First of all, I'd love to have you tell us what Johnson County Empowerment is, but um, what does trauma look like from the community level? So I'll start with just a really brief. um, Empowerment is now called Early Childhood Iowa at the state level. It had previously been called Empowerment. Um, And so there's still, you know, that transition time. There's state funding that goes to every county in Iowa with the intention of helping children to be ready for school and recognizing that in order for kids to be ready for school, um, they need to have, um, have had a strong parenting foundation. So part of it is helping parents as their children's first teacher, helping our early education environments, our child care programs be of high quality, and then making sure that kids are healthy knowing that um, for kids to be successful in school, we have to really pay attention to their health. So all of those things kind of go into it. And can you tell me the second part of your question again? Uh, well, just what does trauma look like when you're thinking about a whole community and um, serving that community and early childhood um, ages particularly? Sure. You know, what so does it look like? When, when we look at trauma within the community, we think about 
kind of the three different um, players in, in what might be a professional interaction. So we think about there's the child, and the child may have experienced some trauma. There's the parent, who also may have experienced some trauma. And then there's the professional, who also may have experienced some trauma. And just based on the, the data of the prevalence of adverse childhood experiences, we know that we have a lot of service providers who themselves experience childhood trauma. And we think a lot about how are we providing them with the resources um, to recognize their own trauma and also then to um, be able to be support people for their clients and the families that they're serving. Um, we kind of think about, you know, what are some triggers? What are some things that, you know, you might respond emotionally to um, when you're working with a family? How do you take care of yourself as a service provider so that you um, have the ability to continue to take care of children and families? Um, so, so thinking about um, all aspects of of that community that, um, you know, the adverse childhood experiences, um, it's not specific to any um, economic, socioeconomic group, any cultural group. It, it crosses all of those. And so, uh, you know, recognizing that many of our, of our community workers um, themselves have experienced that and, and have obviously have the resilience and the protective factors um, to be successful, but it's still there. Yeah. Um, we, we heard mentioned twice here culture. Um, in a community like Iowa City, there are many cultures um, living together here. And um, uh, what, what are some of the things uh, a healthcare provider would, would be thinking about in regard to cultural differences that may affect what one perceives as trouble, maybe, in, in uh, the presentation of a particular child? I'll just go to you, um, Susie, well, and see. We, we uh, see this a lot. So we have more and more families coming to us from war-torn countries, for example. And um, these children, um, adolescents, are describing the experiences that they've had, you know, from the, the war, the killing that they've seen, that kind of thing. And it's so hard for us from the Midwest to really even understand that and have any idea of, of how that could affect them. So that is a cultural um, difference, I guess, a cultural experience that we can't relate to. So that's really been a challenge for our school staff to work through that with our students. And you know, as an outside observer, it would seem to me that within one family, maybe kids, who maybe there are three kids in a family, they would all likely process some things in similar ways and other things very differently. You see one um, person who grows up and really thrives, finds that thing that is just right for him or her, but then maybe there's another child who just can't quite make it. How much of that do we ascribe to just individual personality and character and whatever it is is just individual to that person? And how much of it is something that one feels they might be able to sort of uh, I, don't, I don't want to use the wrong terms here. I don't know if we say correct or, or nurture or whatever, but there are variations within a family um, between kids even in non-traumatic circumstances. So any insight on that? <laughs> well, they have done research, um, and there's a body of research called Help That Helps. 
And what they have found is that um, when individuals feel as if they have concrete support, which is two or more people, that they can ask for help. Um, even if they have higher adverse childhood experiences, they experience lower rates of um, adverse health outcomes. Yeah. And so when we think about with the families that we work with, um, many of them also have challenges with parenting because they themselves weren't parented um, in a way that um, provided the nurturing and the attachment for them to model with their own kids. And we start with identifying who's your support system. Are there people that you can call for help? Do you feel as if you have help in the community? Um, do you feel as if you belong to the community, as if this is a welcoming place for you? And those kinds of questions, as we start asking them, then can lead us to help them develop their own personal system of resilience. You've mentioned mentoring. Um, and if I were to just pick a name of, of a group that has existed for a long time and I think is supposed to, to help young people who maybe don't have those um, resources of people who are their, their go-to allies, something like a big brothers or big sisters, those kinds of groups that put... Um, uh, that connect a young person with someone who'd like to just be there for them. Um, these have proven to be positive, and um, do these kinds of programs help? I think they can certainly, when they're done well, um, you know, I'm not going to say they always help, but um, certainly even in Johnson County, the Big Brothers Big Sisters program has done a lot of um, research into, and they're looking at adverse childhood experiences, and then we think about how do we provide training to those mentors yeah. on um, not only the trauma that those kids may have experienced, but the trauma that their parents may have experienced, and then getting back to the recognizing our own history. And I think that when we have really well-informed um, volunteers, that that can be a very positive, um, a positive program. What we, what we like to see, too, is um, we know that one of the traits that helps families to feel connected is a sense of reciprocity. So feeling as if it's not always you giving stuff to me, but that I have something to give to the community or I have something to give to this relationship. And so helping families find that way that they can give back to their community or back to their neighborhood um, strengthens then their self-esteem and, and the way they handle stress. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. This has been very, very uh, enlightening and um, hard work. Um, I'm sure it tears at, at, you know, your heart sometimes and people who work with all of you trying to, um, you know, do enough, but at the same time, you aren't the parent of that child who needs help. You aren't um, able to be there 24-7. So, um, Anyway, thanks very much to the three of you for being here, Helena LaRoche, Susie Poulton, and Laurie Nash, and um, thank you for listening to this segment. I hope you can stay with us for the third part of this program, when our guests will elaborate on the collaboration between medical disciplines and community health providers to both diagnose and treat adverse childhood experiences, and they'll also share some good news about advances in the field. World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is in international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and I thank you very much for joining us tonight.
Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from the Recital Hall in the Voxman Music Building, and we're happy to have you join us for part three of the series called Resilience Over Trauma. In our program so far, we've learned about adverse childhood experiences and the personal challenges, both behavioral and health-related, that can result when they go unaddressed. In this segment, we'll hear about the collaborative efforts between medical professionals and community health providers to both diagnose and treat adverse childhood experiences, and we'll share some good news about advances in the field. My guests in this segment are Dr. Resmie Oral, clinical professor in the University of Iowa's Stead Family Department of Pediatrics. Thank you for being here, Resmie. Uh, Carol Smith is next to Resmie, and she's a clinical associate professor in the University of Iowa College of Education. Thanks, Carol. And at the far end, we have Armida Wojcik, Assistant Professor in the University of Iowa College of Education. Thank you for being here, Armida. Um, so, in this third part of our program, we're going to try to understand trauma-informed sensitive care practices on the University of Iowa campus, at University of Iowa hospitals and clinics in our county, Johnson County, and uh, in Iowa, and other related places where all of you work. Um, Resmi, if you wouldn't mind just briefly giving people who didn't have the chance to hear our earlier segments an idea of what we're talking about when we use the term adverse childhood experiences. Sure. Uh, childhood adversity uh, can be um, evaluated uh, across several tiers. As Dr. Piquesa had reported before, there's a child component and child's own experiences abuse experiences, sexual, physical, or emotional, and neglect experiences, emotional and physical neglect. Then there is the family component, household dysfunction, such as um, parental mental health problems, substance abuse issues, domestic violence in the family, uh, parental separation under very adverse circumstances, uh, as well as criminal activity in the household. Uh, but lately, within the last decade, we have also started recognizing that community factors such as uh, racial, gender, etc., discrimination, uh, community violence, poverty uh, in and of itself, uh, foster care, um, etc., are also uh, very influential in traumatizing children. Hmm. Well, um, as I understand it, there is a great deal of activity happening on our campus and other places as well, but I know that you are one of the main connectors here on campus. And there is something called a Promoting Resiliency Initiative on the UI campus that maybe you can give us a, a little idea what that's all about. Sure. Uh, actually, my colleagues from the College of Education uh, started this initiative uh, originally. Uh, and our leader, uh, Rory Carson, uh, a professor from College of Education, is also in the audience. Um, we started uh, recognizing that childhood trauma and ongoing uh, trauma through life uh, play a significant role in uh, all kinds of uh, functional areas in our lives, uh, from the school system to mental health to physical health to um, social uh, environment, uh, etc. So as a result, as we had... Um, uh, implemented a trauma-informed care initiative at the UIHC, um, our university hospitals and clinics, College of Education had started uh, a trauma-informed practices uh, committee. Uh, and um, very uh, gracefully uh, and graciously, 
they invited College of uh, Public Health, um, College of Medicine, uh, College of Nursing, School of Social Work to join that effort. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happened that I joined these wonderful mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And uh, through our work since 2015, we renamed the group to focus on resiliency rather than trauma. Mm -hmm. As a result, we call the group Promoting Resiliency Initiative uh, right now. And we reached out to multiple schools and administrative levels uh, on campus as well. And uh, the University of Iowa president, provost's office, and uh, outreach and community engagement uh, offices are also in great support of this initiative. And we're looking forward to doing more work together. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Carol and Armida, um, could you tell us a little bit about the research you've been doing in Lynn County School District um, regarding trauma-sensitive responses? I know Lynn County is a, a big county, but in, you work in a particular uh, school district and uh, can share some of what you've been doing there. Sure. So I think um, it kind of talks about what um, Corey talked about in the beginning, right, where there's the practitioners and the researchers, how the practitioners are usually up front. That was kind of our experience as well. So it was the people in the school, the leadership in the school, uh, the school counselor who know, knew all about all of the adverse childhood experiences, who really felt like, hey, this really helps to explain some of the things that you can't really, that the norm, like the standards weren't really explaining. It helped to explain that, and it kind of made these, these connections for her. That's kind of the theme, right? There's a lot of connections that happen once you start to understand adverse childhood experience and the impact that has on individuals. And so she actually reached out to Carol, because Carol is in the schools every, every semester. Yeah. <laughs> and was like, let's do this. And, and then Carol asked me, too, like, hey, do you want to join in on this? And um, given my kind of research background within the child welfare system and adverse childhood experiences, I said yes, because that is such a, a great thing to be able to join in where people are so committed at the school level and wanting to really have kind of the research to come in to be able to support the things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'll let you. Our whole, our whole project is about bringing in trauma-informed practice into a school from a building perspective. Um, it's not targeted at a single individual or child, but the whole entire community within that school. So our project provides um, information and materials to the teachers and the paraeducators in the school to help everyone become more trauma-informed. So they're approaching the school in a way that creates an environment for all children to be successful. It doesn't require us to know if a child has had a traumatized background. All children can benefit from a, a more positive environment, an environment that all children can embrace. And for those children who may have had more extensive um, histories with trauma or difficulties in life, it is a, a kind of a nurturing environment for them to be involved in. And so at this point in time, we provide all of that um, information on resilience to, our, to the teachers and to the paraeducators and the administrators in those buildings so they can approach um, situations in the school with more sensitivity than maybe they might have earlier um, with this. Um, one of the very interesting asides to all of this is, is clearly in the state of Iowa, 
this message is, is pro proliferating greatly. Um, the need and the ideas that we can make a difference with children by promoting resilience amongst kids in the school has exploded across the state of Iowa. And I think that teachers are embracing the idea that they can actually make a difference, not just in cognitive development and helping children learn, but in some of those non-cognitive um, function um, pieces of, of becoming more socially aware with children, having children help them um, be better problem solvers, um, and having them have opportunities to build that resilience from the start when they begin school. So I think about something like the anti-bullying initiative as something most of us are familiar with and the idea, of course, that if, if a child sees someone else being bullied, um, the child who's not part of that interaction should say, hey, that's not okay with me. Is this a, a very sort of minor element of this whole business of looking at, looking at the situation you're in, the environment you're in, from the time you're a small child on up, and trying to make those decisions about what's right or who needs help or, uh, you know? Yeah, I would say that what we're doing, it's really providing a different lens for understanding students' behaviors. Because what we've already learned a lot about the impact that it has on the brain and brain development, learning, kind of emotion regulation, and all these aspects. And oftentimes, as uh, Susie had said too, you know, it's not what's wrong with you, kind of, but what's happened. It's this idea of looking in this different perspective and understanding why these behaviors might be displayed. And by understanding that why, you tend to interact in a totally different way than you would if you were just kind of saying, oh, nope, I understand exactly what that is. I've seen this a million times. Here's this, the way I'm going to respond. Instead, you can be more individualized and understand what's going on with that child, really building that relationship. That's one of the things that we are, every, almost any time we're in the schools, we're talking about how do you build this relationship. Because, as a, again, another theme that we've talked about throughout the course of the night is how a teacher of having a positive relationship with an adult can really make a difference on um, helping to promote somebody's own resiliency and improving outcomes. So I would say that it's, it's definitely a, a perspective that we're trying to promote. It's also, it's also kind of that idea as well that, um, that resilience can be taught and learned and that the neural pathways are not set yet. I think there is kind of this pervasive myth out there that resilience in particular um, is just something you are born with or you don't have. And um, our whole program is kind of decide, it's kind of saying, no, you know, even if, you're, if, even if naturally you're not just naturally resilient, there's still a lot of learning that can occur and a lot of interactions that teachers can facilitate to help children, you know, um, get to that point of having more resilience or more positive interactions with adults. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to your work in, in um, pediatrics. And you've been involved in this business of adverse childhood experiences and, and collecting data and research and connecting with uh, other scholars around the world on, on these things you now call ACEs. Mm -hmm. um, yes. This is a very big passion of yours. How did, it, how did it all start? When did you begin to think, we need to line these, we need to put these things out um, before ourselves in, in a different way and look at it with fresh insight? Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a very good question. Um, for many years, I have been doing child abuse prevention work, but my prevention work was tertiary uh, prevention uh, mainly, which means there's an illness, a child is abused, I diagnose that this is abuse, 
and services are provided, and recurrence of abuse is prevented. Mm -hmm. That's tertiary prevention. Secondary prevention, on the other hand, is to identify at-risk families and provide them with services before abuse occurs. Mm -hmm. And when I listened to Dr. Felitti, who had uh, published the original ACES study in 1995, uh, 1998, I believe, uh, in Amsterdam, and when he presented his data, a light bulb went off uh, in my mind, and I said, this is it. If I work in this area, that would be secondary prevention of my work. And, um, and just as Dr. Felitti had seen, most of the illnesses in adulthood have their roots in childhood. This is his statement. And it is because of the trauma that the children experience. And uh, as explained before, on the basis of that trauma, brain wiring changes from healthy pathways to relatively unhealthy pathways, which lead to health risk behaviors, which then lead to disease. And when individuals develop disease, because they don't have the internal coping skills, healthy uh, mechanisms to deal with that disease, then their disease is not managed appropriately. So they spend their life uh, depressed or um, untreated diabetes and everything else, as Dr. LaRoche uh, mentioned. That's why these individuals with multiple trauma, without any intervention, without any therapy, uh, and without new brain wiring, end up dying 20 years earlier because of all the harmful uh, coping skills they hold on to because they are survivors. They just try to survive. So seeing all of this, um, I came back to uh, our hospital, and I already knew some of the experts in the field with uh, great sensitivity toward this topic. And we got together, and we started doing education at our hospital, which is ongoing. It probably will continue. Um, we developed a toolkit uh, to utilize in our clinics and units uh, to assess our families and patients through what we call family-centered family well-being assessment, which looks into trauma history, asking the question, what happened to you rather than what's wrong with you, yeah. and focusing on their resiliency, individual resiliency and strengths, and family resiliency and strengths. Then we ask them the questions about what are your current needs? What are you struggling with? How can we help you? When we approach individuals uh, with this compassionate and understanding and collaborative manner, rather than telling them, you need to do this and that. Uh, we ask them, tell us what your needs are so we can help you. With this approach, uh, people are so receptive to our invitation to establish a team together, and we can uh, help them find the resources uh, that they need. Uh, in our study, um, uh, in my clinic, we piloted uh, family well-being assessment in my child protection clinic first and foremost, uh, we identified that of the kids who receive 
family well-being assessment along with their family members, we identify family problems that need to be addressed uh, at least twice at a higher rate compared to those families that don't rece receive the service. Uh, and with those results, our emergency room pediatric population has started uh, providing the same uh, resource to their families. Burn unit, pediatric inpatient unit is also uh, providing family well-being assessment. And Dr. LaRoche is planning to implement the same for adult population in her weight management clinic. OBGYN is willing to be involved, and we are now working at the Stead Family uh, Children's Hospital in the inpatient units with select populations such as children coming to our hospital with suicide attempts or newborns uh, exposed to illicit substances in utero. Uh, we're planning to implement family well-being assessment for those select populations as pilot projects uh, to collect more data so that we can provide uh, the very uh, important data to our hospital administrators uh, to convert our hospital to a trauma-informed one as an institution. Mm -hmm. And I believe this is the future of the healthcare, and I'm hoping, working together, we're going to make significant changes at our hospital before I retire. Wow. <laughs> well, you can never, never retire. But... Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so this sounds terrific. I'm I'm thinking about the already um, difficult um, healthcare expense situation we're facing right now. You know, whatever happens to to um, the Affordable Care Act, um, hospital care, uh, medical care is expensive. These kinds of collaborations. Um, it, it may be that the population you would be trying to help is much larger than you can manage with what you can do at university hospitals, and clearly you're trying to do a lot at the at the school level that can perhaps you know mitigate some of those um, difficulties later on in life. But but this must be a challenge and something that keeps you up at night. How can we help more people in these in these current circumstances? Um, well, uh, our experience has been that. Thanks to Affordable Care Act to a uh, certain extent, we do have a lot of resources, at least in Iowa. Uh, what is the most difficult thing in Iowa is the navigation of the services uh, for the families who are in need of services to find the right resources for what they need. That has been a very significant problem in the past. Affordable Care Act established pediatric integrated health home and adult integrated health home concepts in Iowa. Mm. And in every county, there is one agency who is responsible for pediatric integrated health home, and sometimes the same agency is responsible for the adult counterpart. Mm. And sometimes one agency takes care of five or six small uh, counties. Mm -hmm. So as a result, Case finding is extremely important. When we do that, we are able to connect them with pediatric and adult integrated health homes and obtain consent from our families to provide our recommendations to the health homes. And a family navigator from the group goes into the home, connects with the family, and connects them with the resources either in their own county or in their vicinity. 
That doesn't mean we have adequate mental health services. Mm -hmm. Mental health is the major issue in our society. When 15% of our population, adult population, reports four or more ACEs, childhood adversities, mm -hmm. uh, that means they need mental health uh, care. But we don't have enough mental uh, health providers. And in fact, we're cutting uh, funding uh, for those services, which is the wrong direction to go. Uh, otherwise, um, I'm afraid this divided society is going to become more and more divided. And uh, societal trauma is going to grow to such extents that our society is not going to be a peaceful place anymore. So we would like to work with anybody and everybody, mm -hmm. but also our uh, high-level administrators mm -hmm. and leaders should see that mental health services are extremely important and needed in our society. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this um, piece just highlights how important a holistic approach to working with, with people is. I, I think you can't just separate um, medicine from mental health as much as what we once did. Um, and I think the constant erosion of, of um, mental health services to our rural communities is hampering services for all families. I know that a part of what we, we um, talk about in the schools is really that community connection and making sure families are getting the, the kinds of services they need in order for them to, to um, help themselves to grow and, and learn. And that's really hard when the wait lists are really long, when it takes forever to get the services you need for mental health care. Um, and that hasn't changed since I got and arrived in Iowa nine years ago. And as a matter of fact, it's eroded in those nine years pretty significantly. So the needs are real. And, um, but that holistic approach, I think, is really the piece that um, kind of, I think, for this whole, um, this whole message we're talking about, just holistically looking at children, not just the educational piece and not just the mental health piece, but the whole piece with the medical, the community-based the mental health, the school, and working all together in order to provide the services and the kinds of structure children need to be successful um, so they can grow up healthy. Mm -hmm. Are you encouraged, Armida, by what you see happening in, in the school that you're working closely with? Yes, um, in multiple ways. I am encouraged. So in the schools, it's been really nice in terms of the way that we've created our intervention and the way that the passion that everybody has had in doing that. And when we're in the schools every month, getting to see the teachers become very passionate about this and how that can help them understand the students and give them ideas about how they can interact in different ways so that they feel like they can do something. And so that is as encouraging as could be. As Carol talked about, like across the state, there is just so much interest in this because Everybody is understanding the impact that trauma has on children and how that's playing out in school. These kids aren't coming into school as like nothing has happened. They're not walking into the doors without what happened at home on their way to school or what happened at night. They're coming in kind of as a whole person with all of these good or bad experiences. And so having this as something that they can use and to get kind of more tangible um, uh, methods and ways of interacting with youth is so encouraging. And in fact, the fact that they're all so interested, that just gets me really, really excited because it's so nice to be on that front end and just kind of see where it's going and how we can best serve the needs of the schools and the children in, in our area. And then even within the university and everybody that's here and 
um, all the work that they're doing in different areas and as a university, it's just been amazing. I've only been here for the past, this is my third year, and to be in and then connected to so many people who are so invested and passionate about it is really wonderful. So I'm really excited about it. Well, I think it's, it's very clear that we're the lucky ones to have people like you living here and working here with us, so thank you. And, and I want to say thank you very much to Resmie Oral, Carol Smith, and Armida Wojcik for joining us. And I want to say thank you to all of you who joined us here this afternoon. And for anyone watching or listening to this uh, broadcast, thank you. Uh, we invite you to join us here in the Voxman Music Building for all of our live World Canvas programs or catch them later on YouTube, iTunes, or the International Programs website. Our next World Canvas will be on March 8th, and the topic is Immigration Then and Now, from German Iowa to Today's Refugees. And that should be an interesting program. I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.